Bible from the pew. We're going to read each uh, of the of the pew Bibles. So we're reading in unison before the children go for their uh, time together for Explorers and Pathfinders classes. So this is a very brief three-verse section, and I want to invite you to think about this as an anchor for your soul, the truth that is at the very heart, the very core of why we'll see today the Holy Spirit's power for us to prevail in perilous times is because of a single word that recurs throughout Scripture. The application we see in Exodus 15, 11 through 13 is an anchor. It anchors us in the mighty, miraculous power of Almighty God delivering His people out of the slave market of sin, bringing a nation through the parted waters of the Red Sea into an encounter with a living God that see today is at the very heart of how today in our lives the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to prevailing over the prevailing winds that are around us. And I'd like you to read verse 11 through 13. It's on page 78. And just read together as we get this high note of celebration of who God is at the very heart of the truth of redemption. Reading 11 to 13 of Exodus 15. Would you read with me? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. I want to repeat that note of worship in verse 11 because it brings for us together as we worship today the reality there is no higher honor than to say, O Lord, you are my God. Read it aloud once again, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Now, together, I know you are touched, encouraged, inspired, and ignited by worshiping him. I want to invite you now to give a praise shout to our king. Hallelujah! We give you glory! We give you glory today! You are worthy, Lord! Awesome in praises, doing wonders. And we're grateful. We're grateful. Open our eyes, Lord, to the wonders you're doing even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, take a moment to cross the aisle here a bit and uh, say hello briefly. And our Explorers and Pathfinders classes are going to be going now to their time together. Great. <laughs> Super.
Hey guys, all right. I'm so glad you <laughs> It's good to see you. Yeah, all right, good. Hey there. Hey Adam. Hey Lisa. Hey. Okay. Oh, thanks everybody. Thanks for your kindness, your serving. As I mentioned earlier, yesterday's time together, just to be able to work together was just a real blessing, a real joy. And I, I, again, every, every one of you, I just hope you know, the team that came together here yesterday uh, just more than made my day. I, I, one of our ongoing goals, I say it a lot, is that you know, we want to have a sense of ownership, a sense of participation, a sense of, uh, of shared vision and shared mission. And, and days like yesterday really, really foster that. It, it, it kind of makes it very tangible and hands-on and real, literally getting our hands dirty, so to speak, out in, and uh, being together. So thanks to everybody. I, I mean, many special thanks to many people, and I, 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 would, I would take too long to mention them all, but especially, Lord, uh, for, for Chuck Blevins, who, because of this change of the date, he couldn't be here in person, but his truck and trailer was such a great blessing yesterday. He sent his truck and trailer, which was wonderful. We know it was, it was crucial. And for Jody Smith to come along and bring her trailer and explore and, and, and the two of them together with all that helped us get so much more done. Thanks, Jody and Chuck. And for Jonathan and Ian and Adam and all of you guys working in the trees, thank you. And, and, and Mike, all the weed eating that Mike Gentleman did around was just like super. I mean, just he was just going, going, going. It was just a wonderful time, and I appreciate everybody sharing in that. And, um, and today, I want to invite you, uh, as you see, I want to open our Bibles together today to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians and, and uh, to think, to step into the, uh, the reality that, that the church is facing today, that every follower of Jesus is facing, that increasingly puts before us all a challenge for the renewing of our minds so that we are not swept into ways of thinking that defeat us in our journey and hinder us in our venture of following Christ wholeheartedly. Clearly today, if we think of it in meteorological terms, you might say, that the prevailing winds in our culture are fiercely against the core convictions of a follower of Jesus in our culture. And of course, that shouldn't surprise us at all when we know Scripture, because Jesus said, John 16, 33, these things I've written unto you, that in me you might have peace, in the world you will have all kinds of tribulation. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. But when we open the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we come to a place where that, um, that conflict, that intrinsic war between the prevailing winds of a culture that is deeply saturated with sensuality and idolatry, and open hostility to the magnitude of the holiness of God that we just saw 
in that song of Exodus. And we begin to realize that what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a really classic example of something that needs to be renewed in our day with an understanding of what it means to truly triumph over temptation. And I want to direct your attention, first of all, to the 12th and 13th verses of 1 Corinthians 10, and then we'll come back uh, to, the, to the way that this anchor we saw brings us to the reality of God's prevailing power over the forces that would pull us down. Look at verse 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and reading from the NIV, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come, verse 12 and 13. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. First note in verse 12 that there is a strong note in this whole chapter uh, of a warning against presumption. That's, that's not necessarily a word that we hear that often in reference to spiritual growth. Uh, reminded of a United States senator about 30 years ago who had a very distinctive South Carolina accent, and one day there was a discussion about the economic problems in the country, and uh, his, uh, his quick-witted comment about it was that consumption was growing, and, and that was uh, increasingly a part of the economic forecast that they were looking at. And the way Hollings put it was, there's a whole lot of consuming going on out there. And, uh, and I thought of this when I was thinking about presumption, because truthfully, if we look at the church today, we could say there's a lot of presuming going on around here. There's a, there's a lot of presuming that we are where we need to be with no real connection to what it means to truly follow Christ wholeheartedly. And, and that's a, a, a principle that we see in verse 12, is don't presume that you are where you need to be just because you're you. There's this, there's this uh, warning here. Now, it, it's, I have to admit now, it sounds a little bit uh, grating to our ears because we're so used to church just being the place where we come to be comforted and consoled and encouraged about how wonderful we are. Uh, but the truth is, you are wonderful, and, and uh, we're wonderfully made, amen? Psalm 139. And from Genesis 1:26, when God formed us, humanity, until the crowning glory of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 22, the unique, eternal value God places on every individual soul is accented throughout Scripture. In fact, it's because you're so wonderful it's because you're so wonderfully made and designed by God. It's because of the unique sanctity of human life that these warning chapters like 1 Corinthians 10 come to us. They come to us to help us see what might trip us up, get us off track. Also, though, to show us the magnitude of the one who gives us grace-empowered transformation. 
What is very striking about this chapter is that it is the person of Christ who makes all the difference in understanding how we can prevail over the troubles of these perilous times. And then, verse 13, we stopped at verse 12, look at verse 13. This classic promise from God, this great promise from God, uh, is a is an opening of the door into equipping the saints to see every temptation that comes in life as an opportunity to expand and grow our understanding of Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's a very practical promise. No temptation has taken you, no temptation has seized you, the original Language has the imagery of being snared into a trap. No temptation has overtaken you, the NIV says, except what is common to mankind. Now again, remember that from the very design of God in creation to the ultimate jubilation in eternity over the redeeming blood of Christ setting captives free, it is the eternal value of every individual soul in the eyes of God that is at the core of this. Why would a parent warn a child about impending danger? Very simply, purely for love, purely protection, purely equipping the daughter or the son to recognize danger before it's automatically before it seized her or seized him and drugged them into something that they don't understand. Now again, the cultural dynamic we have today is such that, that these principles that would apply in any generation and in every situation are accented by the emphasis that is increasingly taking over uh, the educational establishment and so prominent in the media where outright lies about what it means to be a boy or a girl, outright, outright lies about identity and meaning and, and gender and all of these things are literally under assault. And so, so when we think about how easily any follower of Christ can be entrapped, seized, snared, pulled into something that is damaging to their soul and demeaning to their sense of standing before God, that is something to be warned about. So this warning chapter has at its very heart, verse 13 is really the heart of this chapter. It tells us how we can do verse 31, which is do all to the glory of God. How can you do that? Well, verse 13 is so loaded with very practical insight about prevailing in perilous times. So the, the, the temptation track is common to humanity. The word common indicates there's not one exception in this sanctuary today. Everyone is being tempted, has been tempted, will be tempted. Can I hear an amen? So the, so the very piercing clarity of Paul's words about what you will face Mirrors what Jesus said in John 16, 33. You will 
face many types of tribulations. Temptation is one of those, not the only one. But now, in the very middle of that 13th verse, we have this great declaration that God is faithful. Could you shout it out with me today? God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, will provide a way out so that you can endure it. I need a remote in a minute. Thanks. So, when you look at that verse, you get this, not only the picture of the preparation and the equipping to face perilous times, but also at the very heart of it, why from that song of victory across the other side of the Red Sea until the very shouts of praise that filled the temple courts when Jesus blessed the disciples and said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. In every way, at the heart of it all, is a simple declaration about the character of God. It's at the very heart of that 13th verse. Would you say those three words aloud with me? God is faithful. Shout it out with me. God is faithful. So the promise is is, is anchored in the reality of how the Lord Jesus is equipping the saints for works of ministry. And what I'd like to do in part one of this prevailing call to stand strong in the times of wickedness is to understand that not only all the resources are in the Word of God for us, but that this chapter we're looking at is kind of like Water in the face in the morning when you're waking up to remind you, be fully alert to what's going on around you. This, this is a chapter that anchors your personal conquest over the things that would most threaten to damage your faith and, and your confidence that Christ has already redeemed you from sin given you resurrection life through the new birth, and made you a son or daughter of the living God. So there's a joining together of warning and jubilant revelation about who you are. Now, I, I want to put it in that light because of thinking of the peril that is highlighted in the 11th verse. And if you look at that 11th verse there in 1 Corinthians 10, you see that the Apostle Paul for the second time in, in this first half of the chapter, the first 15 verses, but has said that there is a reason that God places before us the entire record of Scripture because within the resources of God's Word, the Holy Spirit is drawing out truth that enables you to deal with this... Uh, perilous times culture that we're in. And notice in the 11th verse, there's a phrase that would be surprising to us, and it, it's important to focus on for a minute. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. The NIV describes it as the culmination of the ages 
Other translations may just say the end of the ages. And, and what is notable there is the, the Greek term for that expression is eschaton, and it, it's, a, it's, it's widely used in the New Testament not to refer to some very specific per time frame just immediately before the return of Christ, but it is, re, it is used throughout Scripture to refer to the entire era, the era post resurrection and ascension in which the Bible says that God is raising up a people. God is demonstrating his grace across the globe through people who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, have been born again, experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit, and our lives are living vessels to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to others. And from the very first disciples that he breathed on in the upper room and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Until this very day, we're in a phase referred to as the eschaton. It is that, it is that age in which the priority is to see the life-giving gift of God's grace touch every human being on the planet. It is why the Great Commission is so vital. But sometimes when we hear things like this, we may easily kind of lose sight of, of how, how uniquely this applies in our generation. And I, and I want you to think for a minute, maybe even read this aloud with me here from Matthew 24, 12, because in the, in the great description of how the gospel would go to all the ends of the earth, before that eschaton is completed, we have this amazing statement that applies so vividly to our culture today. Read aloud with me here from Matthew 24. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. Now clearly, if we read that in the whole context of that Olivet Discourse, it's clear Jesus would apply that to a number of different generational points in time. It has an acute application to our time because we know, don't we, that many, many points of confusion have arisen in our culture that are striking at the very heart of what it means to trust in Christ alone and know that God's design, even for human relationships, even for gender identity, is under assault. And, and as we think of it this way, there is a notable emphasis in chapter 10 that, that, that parallels um, many places in Scripture, and I'm just going to pick out two for an example. 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and the word means that literally in the very written composition of the very Scriptures in the original autographs, that the breathing of Almighty God makes that text eternally powerful. So that when you open a paper copy or a hardback copy of a Bible or a leather copy or you open a digital tablet and open your olive tree Bible or your blue letter Bible uh, or what, however you read the Word of God, that those words, God breathed, are profitable, he says, 
for equipping, for teaching, for instruction into righteousness. And, and really the upshot of that is, the implication of the text is that in breathing into the life-giving power of Scripture, that he is with you as you read. Now that may sound so simple and basic, but we get tangled up sometimes and missing the full impact of many of these blessings when we don't um, when we don't apply it to the particular battle we're in <laughs> because it's it's when you're in the heat of battle it's when that temptation has seized you it's when that troubling of mind has interfered and caused you to begin to think how am I going to deal with this disappointment how am I going to deal with this heartache how am I going to deal with this conflict for some people, how am I going to deal with this boredom? I'm just bored. And our hearts and our minds can become sitting ducks for influences that seize your mind and bring you to a place you don't need to be. So this stern warning chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, is, is coming along and giving you the equipment to recognize whenever you're in the heat of a battle or even a moment of battle, or a moment of difficult choosing, that you can say with your heart what it says in the heart of verse 13, God is faithful. God is faithful. As the word of God is coming into my life, he's with me. Another parallel of that is Romans 15, 4. Just a slightly different wording, but the emphasis here is, is on the comfort that comes from knowing you can keep learning and growing. It's remarkable to realize that Jesus himself said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now, we've heard that so many times in our lives that sometimes I think we lose sight of the, of the real impact of what it means that Jesus is saying, if there's something about the Christian life, the virtues you need, the strength you need, the insight you need that you don't have, you can come to Jesus and learn of him. <laughs> because whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Would you shout out the word learning? That we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now this links in the chapter of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians to two phrases that Paul uses. And again, I'd like to direct your attention to verse 6 and verse 11. In both of the cases where Paul anchors this counsel about prevailing in perilous times, there is a dual impact in the purpose statements of verse 6 and verse 11. Both times he refers to these things that have been written, these examples. And in verse 6, his accent is, if you let the word of God dwell in you and you Draw from these examples that we're talking about. It will keep us. So the keeping power of God, the, 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 the power of God that wraps around you, that keeps you strong, that keeps you close to the Lord, that keeps your heart guarded from things that would bring disappointment, disillusionment, discouragement, despair, waywardness, and ultimately 
growing cold, as Matthew 24, 12 says. So, so this keeping power of God is not a thing to be taken lightly. This, the other side of the coin, verse 11, is again, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So there's a dual impact of this to gather the heart of the child of God, to make it possible that in our hearts we can, we can see those currents of the culture that are at war with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And rather than being afraid of them, rather than just going, oh, I just can't stand to hear about any more of this, we rise up and do what that great hymn that said, it said it, let courage, let courage rise with danger, let courage, courage rise with danger, stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross, lift high the royal banner, it shall not suffer loss. And the emphasis in the midst of that hymn is the rising of courage when you're very much in the heat of battle, when you're being tested. So, taking it rather slowly, I think it's good to go back now to that first four verses and think about what is really at the, the heart of this and why was this so significant in the flow of a letter that has so many different um, life applications to controversies of the time in which Paul was writing. Notice at verse 1, the Apostle Paul is now talking about the lifestyle issues of a congregation. What does it really mean to become fully and wholly devoted to Christ in every aspect of life and to recognize the culture that we live in and the points at which it conflicts with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10 says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Now you see why I didn't start with verse 1. <laughs> because sometimes the language in Scripture, leaves people with a little bit of a glaze over their eyes. I love the story of a lady she wrote in the guidepost once and said, our daughter Sherry received a miniature nativity scene as a reward for perfect attendance in Sunday school during the fall quarter. She was so excited that she took it to kindergarten for show and tell. And when Sherry displayed the prize, her teacher, who happened to attend our church, asked her why she had been given the award. And Sherry proudly replied, I got it for having perfect intestines. <laughs> and so often, for us as Christians, we read words that have a kind of a dual meaning. The cloud and the sea? What is this all about? What does this have to do with my daily Christian life? Well, that's one reason I wanted to anchor us in, ex in that brief praise song in Exodus today, because what Miriam and uh, all the women that were dancing with tambourines in, in that chapter we're celebrating, was the redeeming power of God that aimed every heart to the magnitude of his holiness. 
When Paul addresses our, our need for help in the face of temptation in verse 13 here, he says, above all, what you'll need to know is that God is faithful. And, and so this section is showing us five different aspects of how God's grace was displayed through the journeys of the children of Israel. Let's find them very quickly in these first four verses. First of all, our ancestors, he says, were under the cloud and they passed through the sea. Now, obviously, Paul is bringing figurative language to a literal historical event. What happened? Well, Exodus chapter 40 says that whenever the uh, traveling movement of the worshiping community of the Israelites, wherever they went and wherever they were camped, which was a major undertaking for that many people, that there would be a cloud, a Shekinah cloud reflecting the very glory of God's overseeing presence, and it would dwell over the camp of the Israelites in the daytime. And at nighttime, God in his Shekinah glory would bring a, a luminous cloud, a pillar of fire at night. And they might dwell somewhere for weeks or, or months, but then when it was time to relocate this entire camp, the cloud would begin to move. And God used this cloud and pillar of fire in the wilderness as a clear foreshadowing of the fact that a child of God in Christ has the promise of the Holy Spirit who's always with you. The Holy Spirit is always with us day and night. And linking back to that place in Exodus, Paul is saying all of these people that came through that redemption in the wilderness were under this cloud. And why is he saying it? He's saying it because God had a purpose in giving them these natural phenomenon to point us to something greater. One of the wonderful things about all the miracles of the Old Testament is in every case there is a pointer. It is an arrow to something greater. And then it says they pass through the sea. That's a foreshadowing of our experience of salvation coming out of Egypt, coming out of the slave market of sin, coming out of captivity, facing the, the obstacle of the Red Sea that none of us could cross on our own, and at the command of God, the staff of Moses is raised, and the, reds, the waters of the Red Sea part, and we come through. It is a picture of coming to Christ in salvation. Christ was the greater Moses, who parted the waters that led us through his death, burial, and resurrection, and brings us to a place where we can grow. Well, that's two of the five. What are the other two? Well, verse two says, the other three, the other, verse two says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. A reference to baptism, a reference to being immersed. Interesting, a bit puzzling to us. What does he mean? They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, he's using the New Testament experience that the children of God in Corinth had learned about, that in our baptism, we're accepting what Christ alone could do for us, that none of us could do for ourselves. And the very physical uh, act of going under the water and coming up, though it has no saving power in the water at all, it is a 
meaningful symbol that the, the, that the believers, the early believers understood meant that when I put my faith in Jesus Christ alone, when I accept him as my Lord and Savior, I'm accepting that on my behalf, my Lord and Savior went through the waters of death. He took upon himself the penalty for my sin. In the resurrection, his triumphant life has now been promised to me. So I can say, putting my faith in Christ means, yes, he did it for me. And when we're physically baptized, that's a, an outward sign of that, that inward reality. And yet, Paul draws that very experience and links it way back to the miracle of the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt, and he does it to show that God the Redeemer has always planned that we would know his mighty power individually. They experienced it as a nation, but in Christ, it's individualized. And then verse 3 says they drank the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Well, we all remember what happened and what that means, that they were grumbling in the wilderness, and they were upset just days after having seen unprecedented and awesome miracles Hunger had overtaken, and like most people, like most of us, are a little grouchy when we're getting real hungry. <laughs> they, they got real hungry, and uh, they're grumbling, and they're complaining against Moses and against God, reached a certain point, and God used that very human, very understandable thing to bring about a miracle of the manna. Again, the miracle of the manna itself points to the coming Savior. Jesus said it in John 6, I am that bread that the Father sent down from heaven. So what they could never have understood physically in those ancient wanderings is that when they went out to gather that manna in the morning and satisfied their physical need with a very nourishing but probably somewhat boring uh, lack of diversity but uh, sustenance, they were unbeknownst to them, they were partaking of miracle bread that God sent to be a pointer to the future greater bread, which is the bread of life. Again, complaining breaks out in the wanderings. They get to a place called Meribah and Marah, the two Hebrew words meaning quarreling and testing. And at the quarreling and testing place that they later named that, their bitterness rose again because of lack of being able to find adequate water in their travels. And they complained again against Moses and against God. God uses it again. He uses it to draw a parallel to the coming of Christ. He tells Moses to stand before this rock, and God says, I personally will stand there at the rock of Horeb, and when you strike the rock, water will come out for the people. So, Four of these five elements of this redeeming grace of God, I admit are a bit in the midst of history, but the Apostle Paul is equipping the believers at Corinth to overcome temptation. He's equipping them to understand something about this experience with Jesus that was foreshadowed by everything that happened with Moses. So Moses becomes not only a literal historical figure, but the archetype of the coming work of the Messiah 
Moses, a limited and finite and sinful human being, was used, though, as a, as a kind of pillar in history to show that when God used his staff to part the waters of the Red Sea, it was a foreshadowing of the, the greater, the greater. So that when it could be said that all were under the cloud, God was saying, you had a foreshadowing there of what it means for you to be under the supreme power of the Holy Spirit. That all went through the sea means that in Christ you came through the waters into a resurrection life. You partake of that spiritual food and that spiritual drink. And then he says in verse 4 that they all were nourished in the wilderness by that drink from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. What's he doing here? What is, what is up here? Well, in the plan of God to create a people who can truly be the people of God in the midst of a corrupt culture, God was giving them an anchor that would show them how to apply the principles of that exodus to every believer's inheritance in Christ. So in essence, what happens is, Paul the Apostle is addressing some of the deepest problems that happen in life. Now, he uses um, a number of examples, and he touches on four of them. First, he warns against ignorance. He says, you know, I don't want you to be ignorant of these facts. Because just as God gave them a way of escape when they needed his grace, just as he brought manna to feed them, just as he brought water out of the rock, so, but in a much greater way, through Jesus Christ. Oh, they, they had a manna they had to go get in the morning at a certain time, and, and they were warned not to let it accumulate to the next day. For you and me, we have a daily living relationship with the living bread. They, they went to the rock, and Moses struck the rock. Later, God told him to speak to the rock, and, you know, in anger, he struck it again. That became the reason Moses wasn't allowed into the promised land, but it still illustrated that the water was in abundance. And after one strike, symbolizing the crucifixion of Jesus, from that point on, Moses was told, speak to the rock. What a beautiful foreshadowing that is for you and me. The rock is Christ himself. They could not have understood how powerfully God was preparing them to be a people who would really drink at the rock. The prophet Hosea warned this way, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And that lack of knowledge led to a multiple idolatries that were part of the culture that they had left behind in Egypt. And when they made that golden calf in that day, they were, they were tapping into, a, they were tapping into a, a, an ongoing problem in their culture where in all kinds of different ways, their hearts were being drawn after idols. And then Paul talks about the warnings of immorality, and he warns against testing Christ with an attitude of bitterness, and then finally he finishes it by warning against grumbling and complaining. 
Now, this is a part of a whole panorama in Corinthians of equipping a people to really stand out in their culture. As I close today, I'm reminded of a a statement that came in the second century, the early part of the second century, that is a really distinctive example of how when congregations like the Corinthians, they, they got a hold of this, they, they lived it out, they experienced what it means to love Christ and exalt Christ in their culture and to be a people who know he's with you every day. And one of the early Roman leaders named Pliny in the second century, a, a writer named Pliny, wrote to an emperor named Trajan. The emperor had been investigating some of the rumors about these scattered groups of Christians in different parts of the Roman Empire. At the particular time that he was writing, the, the, the fierce persecutions that came later had not arisen. But there was a growing sense of suspicion about who these Christian groups were. And uh, when Pliny the writer delivered his epistle to the emperor Trajan, he described the followers of Jesus in this way. These Christians were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. When they sang anthems to Christ as God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked deed. In that letter to the Roman emperor, the secular writer had tapped into something that stood out in their day about the sparkling distinction of the character of congregations where worshiping the Lord Jesus was at the core of their identity. And the proof of it was in a lifestyle, an appealing, love-motivated, awesome sense of walking before God wholeheartedly as worshipers and followers. Well, that's a, in the midst of history, a one glimpse into the earliest experiences of the Christians, but the Corinthian letter is designed to make it clear in every place, in every generation, where new, perilous, overpowering cultural forces seek to steal from Christians their unique identity that every equipped Spirit-filled child of God can shout with joy the very middle of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and say, God is faithful. Together, friends, not just to say it, but to let it resonate in your heart, would you say with me, God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, I ask today that for this glimpse into the equipping of a congregation facing a very overpoweringly corrupt culture that you gave us timeless keys for prevailing in the perilous times we may face. We do remember, Lord, that Paul said in Ephesians 5.14 that 
that the evil day will come and that you can redeem the time. You can make the most of every opportunity. You can tap into the principle of being ready for action because the days indeed are evil. And so, Lord, in that understanding, there may be someone here today that has a question. There may be someone in this sanctuary who has an uncertainty. Stand wholeheartedly my heart in the hand of Jesus. Am I completely trusting him? One, that you would bless them. Holy Spirit's in their soul. Literally a word. 